thanks for tuning in. Today, Denny and I are going to dig deeper into the arts and entertainment industry and hear from two very special guests, Zara Newman and Tom Lynch. So for those listening who don't know, Zara is my sister. But more importantly, she's an actor well known for roles in several Australian theatre and film productions such as The Book of Mormon, Truth and Wentworth Prison. But most recently in the Australian classic Wake in Fright. And sitting beside her is her partner Tom. He's an entertainment lawyer here in Sydney who is passionate about the creative industry and works with a wide range of successful artists, publishers and producers. All right. So first of all, guys, welcome. Hello, thank hey, you. Thanks for having us. And to kick it off, I just thought it would be interesting to hear from you both how or when you decided to pursue a career in arts and entertainment. How and when, mm. okay. Um, I knew that I wanted to be an actor at a very young age, probably when I was a teenager, and I only really pursued it seriously when we moved to Australia um, and it became viable as a career option. I went to university, I went to two different universities, trained, and then since I graduated, I've kind of been working professionally in the industry since then. I've been lucky enough to be working professionally <laughs> in the industry since then, yeah. And how, how long from beginning to end, Zara, did that, from when you knew to actually then going to uni, so probably um, I was so probably I was maybe eleven or twelve when I decided that I definitely wanted to do it and then pursued it properly when I was about sixteen when I was graduating high school fifteen sixteen mm, okay so yeah. about five or six years yeah yeah and then yeah do you need me to say how old I am now not at all. <laughs> Not at all. And how about you, Tom? So I was very passionate about music when I was in high school and decided to study contemporary music. I was convinced by family members to have a backup plan. And right. I, I somehow ended up in this music law degree um, at university. But the law was very much a, a sideshow at the time. But then while studying music, it became very apparent quickly like I, I didn't really want to necessarily just be a performer or a rock star or anything although that, that was part of it I kind of went <laughs> in the production side of things the business side of things in music so I wanted to work maybe for a record label or for a studio um but then whilst I was doing the law stuff I kind of saw a lot of overlap between the music and arts industries and like a sort of a gap in in someone who had um the right type of legal knowledge to help artists and then I kind of saw an opportunity there and then discovered at that time in university that there was this whole entertainment law industry that I hadn't really been aware of prior to that. So I kind of worked it out in university that I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer, um, maybe about halfway through my mm -hmm. degree. Right. Yeah. And so did you just jump straight into that after uni? Did you jump straight into doing entertainment law or did you transition through a different type I, of law first? Or? Yeah, I did in a way, but it was very tough because it's a very niche and small industry and it, even just law in itself is a tough industry to crack in Australia. There, there's a lot of graduates and there aren't many jobs um, in the legal industry. So you kind of need to, if, if, if you want to get a graduate job out of university, you need to go to a bigger firm and big corporate firms don't necessarily specialise in entertainment law. So that's kind of so what I had to 
is the law that you do kind of a niche? It, it is. It, it, it's the kind of practice we have. We have a collection of different specialist legal areas and together it becomes sort of a niche. Like there aren't many practices that focus on IP law, that focus on media law, that focus on contract law, that focus on employment law, specifically for the arts industries. That's sort of the difference is that our industry focus um, is quite niche. The, the kind of law that we practice, you'd be practicing in other law firms as well, but we're not working for, you know, um, government agencies or for big banks or for just general um, commercial enterprises. We're, we're working for arts organisations, working with artists, we're working with producers, we're working with creatives. And I would say as well, particularly in Australia, that industry is quite small, comparative right. to other places in yeah. the world. So that contributes to the nicheness of it, I yeah, would say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really my, my options after university were go to Sydney or Melbourne because that's the only place that has a, a big enough industry to support um, the need for, for specialist legal advice in those areas. So is there a bit of a gap then, would you say, even now in the, in the industry itself or in the, in the law side of it, that because the arts and entertainment industry is quite big in Australia, I think. Um, so is there a bit of like, you know, should there be a ratio kind of thing? Like how many law firms sort of focus mm -hmm. on or, or practice specifically yeah. um, in that area? There aren't many. I'd say there are a lot of sole practitioners who do it, and there's probably about 50 of those around the country that are, that are good enough to, I think, be um, considered entertainment lawyers. And then in terms of actual firms, maybe 20 good ones and about five big ones, and they're all, they're all based in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but in terms of are, are there enough, I, I know it probably seems like the entertainment industry is big in Australia, but it really isn't. It's, it probably makes a lot of noise in Australia. But in terms of the actual size, it, it's com comparatively compared to US, compared to UK, compared to Europe, it's um, it's right. really minuscule. And Tom, well, do you I guess. Sorry, babe. Sorry. And Tom, do you think that is that part of the reason that why um, particular arts industry in Australia isn't as valued, also as protected as in other parts of the world? Uh, hey, that's a tough question. I don't necessarily think that's the only factor. It may be a factor. Um, but I, I think maybe it's the other way around. The fact that it isn't so valued is why there isn't many, uh, it isn't as high as volume of different um, artists or creative organisations because there isn't enough money to go around for more. Like it's full. <laughs> With the amount of funding they get, there, there isn't really much room for new, um, you know, uh, art bodies or art organisations to, to pop up and take funding. Mm. I guess... Um Earlier, I was just thinking as you were saying that, I guess I think the arts and entertainment industry here is so big compared to somewhere like Jamaica's are where you and I are from, you know, where, I mean, there are a lot of plays, but it's a heavy, it's very underfunded. It's, you know, but it's also a huge part of our culture as well. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the difference, the difference is uh, that you, you can, even though it's very difficult and the, the odds are kind of stacked against you. You can actually make a career here in Australia as an artist, whereas in Jamaica, I would say that you can't. Mm. You, would, you would need to be full-time doing something else and 
have the arts thing as a as a side gig, you know, unless you are an incredible mm-hmm. sculptor or something like that. But I dare say you would also be teaching on the side in order to, in order to to make ends meet. And yeah. it's interesting what you say about value because I would say, based on my experience in Jamaica, culturally the arts is really valued. And I don't think that the lack of funding that happens in the arts industry in Jamaica is because of lack of um, investment as in cultural investment or lack of value. It's because of infrastructure. It's because of a general lack of infrastructure in that community. In a, in a third world context, there is generally a lack of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Our sports suffer in the same way as our arts. Whereas, whereas right. I would say the difference in Australia is that there is a clear quote, quote, cultural line that is drawn where there is a value that is placed on certain types of cultural activities and it's clear where that value scale is and and it's you know i i would say um in a political way or from a government standpoint certainly as an artist it feels it feels as though the government uh and and uh yeah the people in those sorts of positions of power do not see the value that the arts has in society, the place that it mm-hmm. has, and and doesn't acknowledge actually the financial contribution that the arts makes to the general economy. What are some of the challenges that artists ordinarily face within the industry? As you were saying earlier, um, in Jamaica, you know, people would most artists there work full time and then they would be acting on the side or playing music on the side. So the challenges experienced in, you know, third world countries are different from the challenges in Australia. So what would you say, given that Australia has a relatively good infrastructure compared to those countries, what are some of the challenges that you experience as an artist within the industry? Um, I would still say that uh, continuity and longevity in the in the industry or at, in the career is still a challenge. So, in the same way, being being able to generate all of your yearly income from this one industry is still a challenge. That's still difficult to manifest. And if you are able to do that, the likelihood, certainly in theatre, if you're, which is where I have most of my um, experience. If you're working in theatre, what that looks like practically on the page is that you have to be doing at least four to six jobs in the year. And that's just theatre jobs. You might also be doing an audiobook and having to film a little guestie on TV as well, right? So there's lots of other little jobs that are happening outside of, outside of those four to six main jobs for the year. And if you're doing four to six theatrical jobs for the year, realistically what that means is that you will have to be doing two jobs at once. You have to be doing two shows at once. So you're rehearsing in the day, performing at night, rehearsing in the day, performing at night. Then the next show comes on, you're performing that at night and rehearsing something else in the day. So you, you, you're like overworked. You're working 15 hour days or something like that for the, for the whole year. And that's just to generate enough income that you don't have to do any other jobs. So that's still, difficult and and problematic. Um, But I think what that leads me to is that there is a, when, when you're, when you find yourself in that position, which I have, I have, there was one year that I remember specifically where I 
just did back to back jobs, back to back, back to back. And I had no break for the year, no time to decompress from each job. And I felt like I didn't have the right. I didn't have a, a place to say that's too difficult. That's challenging. And I felt like I couldn't say that because that would be being ungrateful because there is a sentiment inside of the industry that is self-seeded, that is um, self-generated. We tell it to each other and we also get it from, you know, the people who hold power in the industry teach us this sentiment as well, which is that you should just be eternally grateful for the fact that you get to do any of this at all. Um, and and that is because, yes, we are privileged. I, I, am, I am definitely a privileged person. I decided that I wanted to be an actor and that's something that I want to do, not something that I have to do. And not everybody in the world gets that choice or not everybody in the world makes that choice. So yes, I am privileged in that I'm not doing a job that I have to do. I'm doing, I chose to do something that I really, really want to do. Um, so I'm not under any uh, misconception about the privilege. Can I just position. chime in there? Most, most people who are lucky enough do get to choose what they want to do. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't let that be something to be used against you that you chose to be an actor. Like I chose my industry as well. So that's okay. Like I wouldn't, that shouldn't be a negative against you though. Right. So <clears throat> other people do that. However, the reality in the industry is that you're getting to run around and pretend to be other people and play dress ups, right? You're not doing a real job. You're just getting to play, play and just saunter around and, oh, do films and fly around the world and, now, that's not the reality of what we actually do, but that's certainly the perception of what we do. We get to choose to do pretend dress-ups, right? And and so you choosing to do that, right, means that, A, you should take what you get, but also you should be so lucky, right? You should just be grateful that you get to be... Yeah doing this thing and that mentality puts you in a position I feel where as an artist you are eternally on your knees you're forced to be eternally just like looking up to the powers that be just being oh gosh thank you so much thank you so much and all that does for your mentality it totally removes your autonomy it removes your ability to legitimize yourself or to demand that you be treated with respect or that your conditions are you know um held to a certain uh, level and stuff like that. And have, I, you, and I, have, have you had instances where you've been actually fearful to ask for some basic stuff, like whether it's to have a day off or anything like that? Of course. I mean, something like a day off is not really uh, in our industry. You don't, you don't really get to have a day off, even in um, the sections of the industry where you're entitled to days off. So, for instance, long-running commercial musicals, you are entitled to take sick days and annual leave and stuff like that. And it is very, I mean, it's very difficult for people to be able to do that. Mm. You are made to feel as though you are not doing your job, as though you're failing at your job if you ask for time off. And this is performing for months and months and months on end with only one day off every week. Yeah. Where, where does that culture come from? Because obviously myself, have a, I've always lived in Australia so what you're saying about the inability to take time off, to have a sick day or the pressure not to rather, if that was to happen in any organisation, whether it's my organisation, Jade's work, Tom's work for sure as a lawyer, 
there would be huge repercussions. So how, how does that culture sort of self-perpetuate from there and where does it come from? Um, I think it has to do with the fact, some of it has to do with the fact that a lot of uh, what we do as artists is wrapped up in personality. So you being in this place, people are coming to see you do this thing. Whereas, um, you know, not to take anything away from being a fitness instructor, but it's like if the class is the same, you know what I mean? We, we can still run the class with a different person, for example. Or, you know, Jade can submit something from home even if she's sick or whatever. I think the some of the, some of the factors around what we do are wrapped up in personality and so they make you feel like you, the person, you are what is responsible for the, for the product at the end. Um, but it's right. self-seated as well. It's also is there, also, is there a union? Yes, we have a union. Um, my personal opinion, uh, this is my personal opinion, is that the union is not very effective. Um, I have had experience with the union. I used to be a member of the union and um, I had a very particular experience where I felt that they did not support us as the artists. They didn't work for us to um, get to fight on our behalf to get some of the changes that we needed on a particular job. Um, and I worked very closely with specific people in the union and made suggestions based on our position as the actual people in the workforce about where the gaps were um, and what needed to be amended with full knowledge that some of this stuff may not come to pass. Some of this is not going to get fixed for us right now. But my definite feeling was that there was a lack of energy and interest in really generating some sort of change that there was, Oh, well, right. You no, know, that's how it is. And producers will never agree to this. And so that's just how it is. So suck it up. And, and so what would you say to someone like you brought this up a little bit before, what would you say to someone who says the arts industry isn't that important or that doesn't contribute that much to whether it be as a income in society or society in general? Um, uh, I'd say I look at the numbers it brings yeah. in $110 million every year. Yeah. Six percent of GDP. Wow. So the reality is that the arts industry contributes a significant amount to the economy. Um, and it's often overlooked in a lot of the arguments that are made because the conversation about the arts is often very um, emotional as opposed to <laughs> scientific and mathematical, right? Because people just think about it, as I said before, as dress-ups. Um, but the reality is that the arts contributes a significant amount of um boost to the economy mm -hmm. and you know uh if anybody is in any doubt about that you just have to look at where we are right now you're everybody's stuck at home mm -hmm. in isolation and the what what you are using to keep sane right now in isolation is creative content anything that you're streaming anything that you're consuming youtube tiktok anything instagram whatever that is all being generated by creative forces and uh that that is testament in itself to um, people's the, the place that creativity and the arts has in society. Right. So, Tom, what about? I mean, Zara's spoke a lot there about you know simple basic rights. Are there any provisions from a legal aspect, you know, to make some change here? Like, what 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 are the constraints within? contracts that artists work from yeah. that 
allow things like this to to happen? Well, I think I think this is you can start with the sort of the historical um, exploitative structure of the arts industry, not just in Australia, but in in other um, you know Western countries as well, where there's been this dismantling of viewing an artist or a performer as a worker or as a labourer, when that's really what they are. They use their bodies mm-hmm. to contribute value to a business. That's the bottom line. They should be treated the same as any other labourer or, or worker. But like what Zara said, there's this perception that it's not uh, a labour job, it's not um, It's not work, it's an opportunity right. to... Playing dress-up. To exert your passions, to, to have your fun, to, 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 to pursue your hobby, mm. your interests. Mm. Uh, I think that's where the deviation has happened, that, that attitude shift mm-hmm. to viewing artists as hobbyists. Um, and, and then that attitude gets adopted by the, the structures that employ artists and performers in a way where they would prefer to employ artists and performers on a contractor contractor basis and in, by doing that there's room to sort of exploit certain loopholes in in employment law and and the, specifically the fair work laws in Australia so what the artists need to rely on is either organizations um, coming up with collective agreements or for their union to step up and fill the gaps and like Sara said, um, I, I share a similar opinion in that the union that exists in Australia for performers and artists isn't pulling its weight. Uh, I don't think it's doing its job. I think it's severely dropped the ball in terms of um, bringing artists as workers back into parity with other workers and labourers in the country. If you look at unions for other industries, the maritime industry especially, um, they fight to the death for any kind of issue that affects the working conditions or the, um, I guess, the view of them as labourers and workers, whereas that just doesn't really happen for artists or performers. And I would also say that something that contributes to, and I have first-hand experience of this, when the, the union's line is we are stronger together, right? So we, we can't affect any change unless everybody joins and everybody's on board, right? And part of the problem with that for artists, and I mean, I, I can't speak for other art forms, but certainly for actors, part of the issue with that is that everybody is so scared about their capacity to gain re-employment that nobody's willing to put that on the line. So when you right. say... If we all stick together, they have to come. Mm. They have to come on board, right? If we all stick together and say we're not going to take this shit anymore, right? Mm. And that is the way to affect change. The reality is that there are going to be people in that group who I, I won't use the word selfish because it has bad connotations, but they are looking out for themselves, right? They are they are taking into consideration their future employment, and it's a real factor for them to mm. consider. If I stand with this group, the reality is that I will be blacklisted, and there are hundreds of thousands of other people out there who can do what I do, who want to do what I do, who are banging on the door to do what I do, and I will just get thrown away and that somebody else can take my place. The issue of being replaceable is, mm. so, is so huge in the industry. It's almost like the only way to, to change that, it does, it does sound very overwhelming <clears throat> and very defeating. Um that it kind of feels like you need support from the top top down. And what I mean by that is that you need people that have broken through 
and have an international presence and awareness to actually come back and and want to help. You know, that's that's the only way that I feel like real effective change can happen by the sounds of what we're saying here. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think people with profile can definitely help. Um, but as I said before, you know, the issue with the way that the power structure is built in the industry is that, and I, again, I've had firsthand experience of this. So I make a lot of noise, right? I, I go on bad, right? All time bad, right, Jade? Right? Like I really kick up a stink if, if I feel like, and I've only recently become like that, that I feel like, no, you're infringing on my rights or this is something that I'm not willing to compromise on. And I will be very clear that I expect, I know that you're doing this to everybody in the group. And I am demanding that you change this for everybody. And the reality of what happens is that they go, okay, Zara, well, we value you. So we'll change it for you. We'll do this separate little thing for you. And we'll put that into your contract and you're looked after and you're all safe. And uh, everybody else just, you know, they can do it. And, and to be honest, like I'm not in your industry and I only, I've only started learning because you're my sister-in-law now and I care about you. It's, it's just so like self ingrained, and um, the 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 bigger issue is the public perception of the arts industry, right? So if you had told me about acting and act- actresses, I'd be like, they get whatever they want, they get, a, they get whatever they want in there. Just like this is the stuff that we hear as a public perception, because that's what we get to hear. You hear about Chris, per- you hear about Nicole Kidman. Yeah, exactly right. But what we don't hear about is someone who, like Zara, who's actually yeah. a working, employed actress who what? through working hard has been able to support herself buy a home all that kind of stuff but has battled the whole way through we're not hearing these stories and, and the reason why jade and i wanted to start this process is actually i'm very fortunate to know a few people in that industry like directors and, and writers and stuff but i've never heard any of this stuff mm-hmm. and it's it's the it's the working class actors as it were like the ones that are just putting on great performances like you do in terms of like theatre and things like that that we don't hear about. We only hear about the, the perception of these big-time actors that they get these big um, trailers and all that kind of stuff. And so the public perception is like, what are you complaining about, Zara? Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm hoping that we get across here today is that people understand that there is a thing called a working actor who hustle 365 days a year, who go to auditions, who are working two or three roles all the time just to survive. And they are scared to take any time off or take a holiday or ask to have a bottle of water in their room to get ready with. Right. With basic <laughs> rights. Yeah. So that's 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 what this is about. And anyone that is fortunate enough to listen to this, and I'm, I'm going to be pushing the shit out of this so I can get as many people to understand it. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about Chris Hemsworth. There is other levels and other tiers of actresses people and actors, people coming up. Do we just call you actors or actress? I call actors, right? All right, I'm not sure what the PC thing is. But there's different tiers of this shit. And unless you're at the top, it's a nightmare, basically, by the sounds of it. And you've got to be right at the top, the top 0.5%, not even the top 1%. It's got to be, a, it's probably a smaller percentage than that, right? And, yeah, I mean, and, you know, again, I'll share a little anecdote. Um, you know, as I said, I've, you been, want to. I've been, yeah, yeah, I've been working in the industry for 10 years, right? So I kind of go, okay, I've, I've formulated enough networks and, and relationships with certain people, you know, where it's like, okay, I, I don't necessarily have to audition for some people anymore, which is really great, right? That takes a lot of pressure off me. It's a nice position to be in when someone offers you work as opposed to having to prove that you can do the job. So that's really wonderful. But I was working for one of those people and I had to travel for the work and 
So they have to accommodate me in that travel. And, you know, the options, what they wanted to put me in for accommodation was no lie, a mattress on the floor. A mattress on the floor. Wow. With a piece of cloth over a window. Some of the places did not have windows. And I was expected to be away from my place of residence for four weeks. And this was what my employer thought was suitable accommodation for me to represent their company, work with international stakeholders. You want to talk about this in a business context? I am representing their company internationally. Internationally. Working with stakeholders. I'm, you know what I mean? And um, that was what they thought was a suitable solution for my accommodation. Now, to me, that just speaks of like, disrespect <laughs> you know and and what you're mm. talking about Denny about like feeling like you have to just constantly be on a hustle that's a that's exactly mm. the feeling is yeah. that I feel like it doesn't even matter what are you guys doing I've worked for you before we have yeah. a relationship I think that you know it's going well you've asked me to do this show yeah. that's really good you know and it, it comes down to value and priority and I see it from the other end I work with clients who are you know producers and who are arts organizations who just have this culture of viewing certain things in a higher uh at a higher value scale than the actors they're often at the bottom of the rung i think that that's not necessarily a problem with individuals i think that that's a structural issue in that they view the actors as the most expendable part of the business and that and that is right it's come down to limited opportunities a big pool of people who want to perform and to be in that industry and going back to you should be privileged, so why would you push back? Mm. Take what you can get, and it, it, and that, mm. so that needs to be unwound before anything. And anything. with and with that kind of attitude and those kind of structures, it's no wonder why we have like. Well, I'm not saying this is that situation, but this is how you create a Harvey Weinstein mm. because he has that pool, and you as the actress know there's all these people, so you you've got to do X Y Z to get a role. And this is how people get taken advantage of. Like that's where the power comes it's, from. It's the way that you describe it, Tom, in terms of a legal point point of view, um, and the industry itself. It's kind of like human trafficking to a certain extent. Like it's not that bad, but it's it, it's not it's not to, it's not to that extent. But honestly, yeah. it, it, they are using like the population of talent to minimize people's ability to earn income and their conditions, and it's it's not okay. Yeah, if it was done in any other industry, you wouldn't hear the end of it. I guess that's the that's the really sad thing about it. And I think it's because that attitude has spilled beyond the industry and it's been adopted by society in general. I, I, I think right. and, I, and that's where I don't really know if it's an Australia problem or a global problem, but you certainly right. see in this country the, the, the lack of uh, value placed on performers and artists by society in general. It's definitely mm. a, a global thing. We've seen that. It's been in the media. We know that. But yeah. there are other countries and societies who do place more value on performers and actors, um, certainly in, in places in Europe where they do, um, you know, provide better protections to artists, provide better income sources for artists, more secure income sources, and that comes down to government assistance and sort of government intervention coming and going, recognising that there's a gap, recognising that there's a loop to be exploited here um, in terms of contractors who work between jobs like performers, mm-hmm. filling that gap, providing the the buffer that you need 
to survive in between the jobs or to to be able to ensure that performers are getting their legal entitlements that any other labourer or worker would get in terms of sick leave and annual leave. And Australia, as far as I can tell, is in no position to be able to step up and fill that gap. Right. And besides the union, because based on what both of you are saying, you know, the union isn't really serving its purpose. Are there any movements, any sort of grassroots movements or any other bodies that are coming together to try and change it using a top-down approach? Are there any other successful, whether it be producers, artists, um, that are forming bodies to try and change things? Is there a movement that is starting to happen? Is that something that you see happening in the future? I think so. I think there are, I, mean, I don't think it's necessarily... Um, a shift in attitudes, but I think there's always going to be people and organisations out there who have better attitudes and who do try and create better workspaces for artists and for performers and who do try to, um, I guess, work in different models to be able to provide a better opportunity for artists, but they're few and far between and I don't think it's necessarily a movement. I think it just comes down to individuals rising above the expectations of the industry. And that's just luck of the mm. performers, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it, mm-hmm. Like Denny said before, it really does have to come from top down. I think any real, I, I, I think unless the union can, can um, you know, get itself together, I really think it does need to be almost a government implemented change to begin with, um, in terms of changing conditions or changing the the attitudes. Mm-hmm. I think the rest will follow from there, but I, I don't think you can rely on. Um, the artists necessarily, maybe the organisations, mm. but I don't think that's ever going to mm-hmm. because it's not in their interest. Because right. again, it can't, it's not just the artists who are perceived as low value; it's the arts. So the arts organisation, it, it's it's almost a two pronged issue, and it, it trickles down to the artists who suffer it the most, but it's also the art organisations who get the short end of the stick. Mm. Right, they're they're all fighting over limited right. resources in this country. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they're in, a, in their own little dark cave. No one really wants to do with it, so they're just allowed to do their own thing, basically. Pretty much. <clears throat> and I think, you know, also um, certainly, I don't know if it's changed, but certainly when I was training as an actor, uh, you get taught a lot about autonomy, that you're going to, you know, there's very the percentage, the chance of you getting a job is this low and you need to be able to generate your own work, you need to be autonomous, you need to, you know right? But there's not a lot of business training. (laughs) So there's not a lot of information or teaching. There's no learning about, say, how to read a contract, how to read a contract. Mm. What are your rights and responsibilities? What does it mean when you shoot an ad and then they want to run the ad three years later? We don't get taught any of that stuff. That's where our agents come in, Mm. right? And, And there is definitely... Uh, a sense that you rely on your agent to protect you from from is that because is that because they're trying to keep agents relevant as well they're trying to keep protect those jobs i mean if you if you learned all of that in school zaro would you consider hiring an agent when you when you graduated i mean 
I think you still you might I, initially. I think you still would because an agent, when you graduate, an agent is always going to have more networks than you mm. do. An agent right? also gives you opportunity. Mm. The agent is also part of the agent's job is also to sell you, to like pitch you, to go, you've never heard of this person. They're amazing. You're going to want to see them. Right. So there is still room for, mm. for the agent. But I think that regardless of whether or not your agent does that for you and does that really well for you, it still behooves you as an, as an artist to know what you're signing. And I think that a lot of the people in power who employ actors, etc., know that the artists don't know that the small, the small print, that they don't really understand it, and they rely on that as well. Right. Agents mm-hmm. also have a stake. They want to maintain good relationships with producers. They want to maintain good relationships with, with casting directors. They don't want to piss people off. So, oh, you know, they're not going to give you all the stuff that you're entitled to for this, but, you know, they're really good. So if you do it this time, then the next time, you know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. massage. Right. <laughs> yeah. Massaging. I mean, an agent, just, yeah. from a legal perspective, an a- agency is a relationship of fiduciary. So an agent is meant to be, in, in theory, working in the best interests of the, of the actor. Of the, yeah, of the actor. Does that happen in practice? Potentially. I mean, there's always going to be a conflict, isn't there? Um, and I, 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 well, I, I, I never actually thought of it that way, Tommy. Yeah. I, I've actually never made that, that, that connection that Zara has just said, and, and you've just said that the agents, yes, kind of looking out for the actor, but they've probably got a stable of how many, Plus, they've got to maintain their connections so they can help these other actors get jobs as well. And so that's I, can say, well, I don't yeah. necessarily think that's uh, an incorrect approach. Mm-hmm. I just think that, that that creates a gap that needs to be addressed. Um, and like I said, maybe that takes the form in better education in, in terms of actors going through their schooling, learning about the business side of things, but also I think clearer information coming like government regulations that would... Uh, require organizations who are employing actors to provide the right information directly to the artists and say here are your rights here's what you can expect in your relationships and here's what we're offering you in very clear plain english and if there's something incongruent between those two then that should be re- sounding um, alarm bells in your mind mm-hmm. rather than relying- ask you one more question sure is there a difference between um zara's main background which is theater and and film because I like as we're talking, I'm thinking is is film the same? I feel like film maybe they have different structures and maybe a bit more support. I actually think Zara probably have a better experience with that. But from what I can see, artists are still at the bottom of the rung, regardless of the format. Generally, I see that maybe artists are treated slightly better in film, only because there are more bargaining agreements in place in relation to television and film that protect actors. And that means that lots of producers need to sign up to a certain standard of workplace um, conditions and rights for theatre and TV, and there's more, more legislation in place mm. to protect workers in those um, in those environments. As is there also to- a lot more government funding going to film? I say there's more. Mo- I would say there's more money. Absolutely. In f- yeah. in filmmaking sure, than absolutely. there is in theatre. There's more opportunity for international money in film and TV, so the government does place higher value on film and television, therefore spends more money on it. Mm. Um, and, th- and that that would be a factor, absolutely. Yeah. But in terms of on-the-ground experience, I've heard ranging stories. I've heard some actors who swear by theatre and some actors who swear by TV. Well, thank you for that, Tom. That was fantastic.
I wanted to get an idea from you both of how how the industry has adapted during this time. I mean, I haven't really heard much. I've seen a few, um, you know, high-flying singers and stuff doing uh, live shows through Instagram and, and, and things like that. But how has, I wanted to hear from you both, how the industry has actually adapted to the new measures and what you think, given that this social distancing, physical distancing is going to be with us for some time, it seems, um, you know, we won't be able to gather together and go to a concert or go into a packed theater. How do you think that's going to, that's going to change things in the future? How do I think the industry is dealing with it so far? I mean, I think everybody certainly, I would say in the theater uh, sector, the individual, the in the major companies, the individual companies are trying to deal with it individually. <laughs> um, so some of them are really embracing like an online platform where they're trying to do play readings and do thing, you know, generate interviews, on- online and, content, yeah. interviews and podcasts and stuff like that, you know, to try and keep audience um, engaged with the business. Um there are some, there are other theater companies that I know are trying to use this time to generate. Uh, so they're trying, so there's one particular artistic director I know who I've spoken to who um, really does not want this to be a time of administrative blah, you know, where it's just, okay, well, we just keep everyone in the office going, but all the artists don't get employed and every, we're all just keeping the business going until we can reopen the theater so he's using the time to um, try and find ways to actually hire artists back in and find ways that we can use this time to start generating new stuff. So we're strapped for time when we've got to produce shows. We can't do developments and stuff like that. Let's do all the developments now. So I'd say everybody's trying to find their individual ways of doing it in terms of film and TV. I mean, I know Neighbours went back on to set like two weeks ago, a week ago. That's right. So they are trying to film socially distantly film I, I i don't know what that looks like i've never been on a film set with like less than 50 people so i don't i don't i don't know what that looks like in or practice or if it's even possible in practice or if it's possible to do you know in a covid-19 <laughs> yeah just um, with the covid stuff as well like um one thing i wanted to ask and the, the initial thing that got my um uh, antennas up about speaking to you was from a government point of view as well. So as a business owner, we've been given heaps of grants to actually persevere and come out of this, um, which is a good thing. And I think many businesses probably will. Um, And further to that, a lot of my employees have had benefits that they can get through us as well, like the JobKeeper and things like that. So as an artist, if you're on on a contract and now the world just stops and there's no one acting, you know, there's probably about 98% of the actors out there without employment, what happens from a support point of view from there? Do you are you eligible for a JobKeeper thing, or do you just have to go to Centrelink and get it on a on a dole? Some actors are eligible for JobKeeper. <laughs> Fact. So Fact. I think there's been some misinformation and confusion in the arts industry, especially. So the way the government has um, legislated JobKeeper, the the main criteria to be eligible, removing all the background stuff, is that you need to have been employed either as a 
full-time or a part-time employee or as a casual who'd worked 12 months for the business prior at 1st of March. There's other things, background noise, but what's been interpreted by that from a lot of organisations, especially in the arts, is that that does not cover fixed-term contract-to-contract performers. I don't really understand where that perception came from. Maybe it was a confusion with the casual 12-month thing. But as, as, as far as I see it, most, and in terms of in my practice as a lawyer, most artist performers are engaged as full-time employees on fixed-term contracts. That does not mean you're a casual. That does not mean you're not an employee. That just means your employment term runs between a, this date and this date. So if you were employed in 1st of March during that period, you would be eligible for JobKeeper. Now, that's actually supported by the information coming from the Treasury website. So the federal government is actually um, supportive of that position and and, and that's their intention. For whatever reason, a lot of arts organisations have either been confused by that information or have willfully ignored uh, the facts or, you know, the, the, the crucial details of the legislation and have been uh, propagating this misconception that performers that are not eligible, eligible. Uh, and artists are not eligible for JobKeeper whatsoever. There are going to be some artists and a lot who will fall through the cracks and who aren't going to be eligible, but by spreading that message, my concern is that, and I've seen it happen, is that organisations aren't even looking into it. And 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 and, and uh, a flow-on effect of that is that they're telling their supporter base, their punters, their audiences, that the money you're going to donate to us, we can't give back to the artists through JobKeeper. That's that's, that's misleading. That's misleading. Um, that blanket statement. The, the fact is, it's a case by case situation. Some artists will be, some artists won't be. And like like all workers in all industries, it really comes down to fulfilling that criteria. There's nothing in that legislation or the government mandate. That precludes, precludes artists. artists. And, and that message I'm, I, I actually am seeing being... Um, Proliferated it's everywhere. Being e- it's being echoed in the newspapers every weekend. By I don't get are, it, though, because it's, it's, it's not their money. They're not having to pay it themselves. It's coming from the government. And I think, it's, I, I think this is a very clear example of a union completely failing their members. The union Absolutely. is... I have on good authority that the union has been made aware that they have been misleading uh, members with false information regarding this and that actually some art- some actors, artists, creatives who are on contracts and were employed at 1st of March are actually eligible to apply through their employer for JobKeeper and the union, the response was quote, very unhelpful. They, I, I don't know. I didn't speak to the person in the union myself. I have mm. it on good authority. From uh, My background as a business owner is completely confused by this. Mm. It's one thing if they have to pay you money from their savings, for example, but when it's a government initiative and the government's like, just apply for it <laughs> and, we'll, and, you know, if, if they're eligible, they'll, they'll get it and, they, and they're not doing that, it actually makes me really, really fucking angry. And I'm sounding like a broken record, but it comes back to value. If you're not placing value on those workers, then you're not going to expend the effort and energy to protect them. If you ever needed a clear example of the lack of value, that's the case. Free government money 
you're not worth it. We're not going to apply for it. That's the clearest example. Yeah. They may be applying for the funds, telling you they're not and keeping it themselves. That's something for but someone to well, look into because that could be a possibility. And, and, as well. and that's exactly what I was going to say. But surely the, the, the ATO or, or the tax body would find that out. I mean, you can't apply, Tom, is that something that they would be able to get away with legally? You I mean, if, 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 if you've only kept 10 people on your payroll, yeah. but you've applied for 20 JobKeeper payments, yeah. how do you. So they're not necessarily over subscribing for it, but maybe they are subscribing it for themselves and keeping it for themselves. Um, now, there will be more for out, but I'm not sure that's the case. I have no reason to believe that arts companies are doing that. I, I, do, I do acknowledge that there are going to be people out there who are going to exploit the system across all industries. There'll be a small number of, uh, you know, operators who will misuse this legislation and the money. They'll probably get found out. They'll mm-hmm. probably get penalised. I have no reason to believe that this is an arts industry um, sort of conspiracy to hoard money from the because they, arts organisations are thoroughly audited because of the nature of their funding and the nature of their philanthropic um, mm-hmm. sort of funding of, 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 of their resources. What I actually think is happening is that they don't want to spend the time and the resources in uh, looking into it or into making because the, the difference is. They're not just a business employing 10 actors. Over that period, even over a month, there might be 50 different performers that they've employed. On all starting at different times, all having different lengths of contracts, all with different terms and different. So it would be difficult, it would be annoying for them to have to right. go through all of that. Can I tell you the process of applying for JobKeeper? The form is two pages long. The company puts their ABN, the name of the company, and the form goes to the employee, they fill out their details, and the form gets submitted. Most places, like the way I did it, my accountant did it for me. I had my, my, I had my, my staff fill out the document so we had a paper trail, but the accountant does it. It's a very, very simple process. So I don't understand why they're not doing it. It's really very frustrating. It's really disappointing. Honestly, as, as, as an artist, I can say it's, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a um a chink. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. You know what I mean? It's like I I'm really disappointed by I'm I, I, I don't mind I wouldn't have minded if uh you know leaders in the industry had come out and said, you know, all of this stuff is really confusing and a lot of us are not going to be eligible. A lot of our creative employees are not going to be covered by some of this legislation. Some people will be and some people won't be and we think that's really shit and it's really frustrating for us because it puts us in a position where we can't effectively support all of our employees despite the fact that the government is trying to help businesses to support their employees. A lot of ours won't be supported. Um I would have no problem with that, but to blanketly say that we just aren't eligible and we just aren't covered when that's not correct, in my opinion, in my reading of the way that the legislation is worded and the information that is available on all the government websites, that is not correct. Mm. There are quite a number of artists who had who were in rehearsals or in production who would all be eligible to be covered by JobKeeper. And um, the, the reality about what has happened, you know, asking about how the industry is, is dealing with, you know, what's happened, um, everybody has gone their own way. So every company has come up with their, uh, 
a slight variation on a on a general theme about how they're how they're going to um, deal with those contracts, those people who are currently employed at the time. Um, and what that's done is meant that there's no blanket, there's no uniform approach. uniform approach and response mm. to the situation. It, it doesn't mean that every company is doing the wrong thing. That there are companies out there who have just paid out the contracts out of their own money. Anyone who was contracted during the time of the shutdown, if they if they had already started their duties, if they're already mid show, they just paid them out. Some of them. So I'm not saying that because of this, every every company is behaving terribly towards its hardests. It's not not just a blanket sort of name and shame. It's it's more the misinformation and the and, and the flow on damage that may cause and probably has caused already. And mm-hmm. certainly in Zara's experience, she's had to vocalize her position to sort of shake her employer into into doing what they should have been doing anyway. Mm. Yeah, but by doing so now, by, by doing just standing up for herself and asking for the bare minimums has potentially further made it harder for herself to get, get gainful employment in the industry moving forward. It's just not right. I mean, that's certainly the feeling. I think that if I was a younger actor or if I, you know, didn't care about people or I cared more about people's opinions of me or something, I would definitely not want to push mm-hmm. any buttons. I wouldn't, I would be going, Oh gosh, but what if they bring the show back and then they might not ask me to be in it. I shouldn't push this, even though I know that this is wrong. Because you should be grateful. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so do you think in the future, I mean, do you think this is going to push a lot of people out of the industry potentially. I mean, now, as as Denny's saying, you probably have ninety eight percent of artists unemployed. Now they're probably going to look for other work. Do you see the industry actually losing a lot of talent and and suffering? I think there's always going to be people out there who want to play dress ups. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there will always be people out there who yeah. need to fulfill their creative drive. And thank there's God no for that shortage. I, would have, I wouldn't have been able to watch Game of Thrones, Succession, all these great shows if no one wanted to do this shit. I can't imagine a world without Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, my God. Have you seen Succession? <laughs> Jesus. That's outstanding, that show. I love it. So I think there's always that, there's always going to be people filling the industry. I don't think that the industry will collapse. I don't think we won't have yeah. arts anymore. No. Music will die. Like, I don't think that that's going to happen. People are always going to fo- uh, follow their art, creative drive. Um, but I certainly think, I mean, speaking personally, it's definitely given me a big shove out toward towards the exit. I don't want to be in an industry that doesn't value me. The, the, what I have received from the way that the leaders in my industry, many of them, not all of them, have responded and ch- and the way that they've chosen to respond has spoken to me that they value payroll and marketing and accounting and management administ they they value the admin of the business more than they value the people who create the content that enables that business to be existing mm. Mm. that is all that yeah. i have received and you know, it was interesting. I read an article yesterday in Arts Hub written by a member of the industry um, talking about, you know, the fact that there's there's a diff- there's different kinds of leadership. And sometimes we need a moral leadership. 
Sometimes we require somebody to say, this is not about the financial outcome. It's about the optics. It's about the moral leadership that we require right now, which means we need somebody to say, we are not going to let this happen where we are forced to ignore our creatives. It comes back to a little bit about even, sorry, even ethics to a certain point, you know. Ethically, like legally, sorry, legally they they can not apply for JobKeeper, (laughs) I guess, right? But ethically it's it's so incorrect. Yeah, and ethically it's so incorrect, you know, and for for the arts industry where it, it, it is meant to be that other side of society where it helps us think differently and it helps us think differently like, you know, in business there's, you got rules that you can uh, uh, play by, but there's there's still ethical things to that as well, you know. Like there's still that that grey area, and it's just I don't know. I just feel it's disappointing. It's very very unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, I think we should leave it on a positive note. So Zara and Tom, I'm going to throw over to you, and I want you guys to share with us your top three. Could be shows, articles, oh poems, something that you've been, you know, consuming during the lockdown that you think we should tune into. Sure. I, I've been looking for pure escapism at the moment. Game of Thrones. So I we watching every season. <laughs> I've been we've been watching lots of horror films and action films. A recent one on Netflix, Extraction, with uh, Chris Hemsworth. I recommend that if you want just a good John Wick style action flick. That's a good one. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I've been playing a game called Animal Crossing, which <laughs> is just a game where you just live on a little island with some other villagers. You just you plant your flowers. You uh, sell turnips. Sell your turnips, and you just live out a very humble existence on this island, coronavirus-free, no people. <laughs> very calming. Very. Do, do you mean? Do you mean you're working your own farm again? Is this a reality thing? Is it a real thing? Virtually, yes. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. Just clarifying, because just just so those people that are listening, Zara and Tom are based on a farm at the moment. Tom's family farm, mm-hmm. so. I'm willing to admit I'm doing more farm work in my virtual island than Zara's. <laughs> Not true. We have a, we have two veggie patches going, and we've got a third. We've got a third one coming, and we've got pa- pa- uh, radishes and beetroot and lettuce, spinach, roccalicetta. I don't even know what that is, but it's a thing. <laughs> Broad beans, silver beet. We're very very good mm. out here. We've got growing. So, yeah, a, a, a good mix of distractions. Yeah, I would say, um, what am I reading? I mean, what I'm reading at the moment, which is very interesting, is a book called Sapiens, which is, um, yeah, have you read it, Denny? I have. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm reading Sapiens at the moment, which is um, strangely fitting because it's, <laughs> uh, it's uh, I guess, a social, a, an, uh, an investigation in how we, the modern human, and how we came to be the way that we are and how our structures are built and stuff like that. Um, And, yeah, it's just very interesting to be reading something like that at a time when things like community and what is classified as essential and what we need as opposed to what we want and, you know, all Mm. of that is part of the conversation, you know. 
what's necessary and what's vital, what, what's really valued at the end of the day when you're in a crisis. Um, it's very interesting to be in that situation and reading a book about uh, how we came to be the consumers that we are, I guess. Right. <laughs> consumers that we are, yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll leave it there. 